Welcome to the Ab Initio podcast series, a Bankless Legal Guild production. If you are a lawyer, accountant, or tax professional, you're likely getting an increased number of questions from clients about cryptocurrencies, DAOs, and the blockchain in general. The purpose of this podcast is to help you answer these questions by having our established expert guests discuss current legal issues and cases on a regular basis. The information provided in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be regarded as legal or financial advice. And now your host, Mike Rabinovich, aka Comeback Kid on Discord. In this episode of the Ab Initio Bankless Legal Guild podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ben Melnicki, a senior regulatory and compliance attorney whose career has spanned some of the leading companies in the crypto and finance space most recently at Robinhood. We discussed, among other topics, his journey as an attorney, which started out in traditional finance, his views on the accredited investor exemption, how the role of a compliance attorney is treated differently in crypto and requires a different skill set, and how to find life balance in a space that seems to be moving at the speed of light. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Bankless Legal Guild podcast, Ben. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, I'm going to start by asking you to share with our audience your journey as a lawyer from the traditional finance world to the brave new world of crypto, DeFi, and DAOs, the pivotal stops you made along the way, and what you're looking forward to next. Sure. Well, you, you make it sound a lot more exciting than it probably, than it probably is, Mike. But uh, <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> it's your job. There you go. But I actually had, I, I've had a non-traditional sort of um, entry to both the legal world and crypto in general, I, uh, to start, I went to law school at night. So I was at uh, a bank, Merrill Lynch at the time, before the Bank of America acquisition. And, you know, I, right in the midst of the financial crisis, uh, you know, I said, this is just, this is something I always wanted to go to law school and I never did it. And, you know, I put myself through at night, uh, worked during the day. Um, I was, I was in uh, municipal bonds, municipal securities. For those who are not familiar, it's sort of, um, you know, your local town, or city or county or state needs to raise money, they'll, they'll issue debt. Um, and, you know, so I was I was in that space. And as the financial crisis happened, I just decided, you know, I'm going to go to law school. And, you know, I, I would say the best way to sort of tell the journey from there is I, I've had two intersections really where I found myself uh, attached to like the next hot area of the law. And the first was in the U.S. here, we passed the Dodd-Frank uh, Dodd-Frank Act, the Wall Street Consumer uh, Protection Act. And, you know, I sort of raised my hand while I was at a firm named Cantor Fitzgerald and, you know, did a lot of that work and, you know, on the legal and compliance side. And, you know, it was really, really fascinating. You sort of got to see how, uh, you know, so-called you know, derivative instruments were actually being traded electronically now instead of through stacks of paper. And, um, you know, that, that was that was the first intersection. And it really, really was a pivotal moment for me in my career, and it took me on this journey. I ended up, um, I ended up being connected to a group uh, that was going to start a bank in a Puerto Rico bank charter. The bank was named Noble, and it's it's actually no longer in business. It was an early predecessor to some of the names you'll hear today, like Silvergate and you know Cross River, uh, an attempt to really you know provide settlement for cryptocurrency exchanges and market participants. And we were going to overlay it with a, with sort of an FX component to it. But long story short, it you know it ended up um, ended up 
not not being a commercially viable model and you know, filed for bankruptcy. But that was that was how I got my exposure to crypto, and I sort of went on this journey uh, ever since, working for companies like Blockchain.com. You know, I still think you know, one of the most fascinating and and the best non-custodial wallet that's out there. Um, you know, journey took me to Ripple Labs, where I did some government affairs work and counseled the product team. Um, you know, help Grayscale sort of launch their their regulatory framework for their their private placement business and uh, and Robinhood Crypto, most recently. What key themes in the space do you see unfolding for the rest of 2022, particularly with respect to the U.S. regulatory outlook, and what might emerge from President Biden's recent executive order? Ah, the crystal ball question. I'm like, so yeah. Look, I, I mean, first off, the 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 executive order it calls for a number of reports that'll be produced over the coming months through the through the rest of the year, uh, some interagency coordination. I, I don't see a legislative solution coming to fruition in the coming months. I mean, we're, we're headed into an election year. There's a lot of rhetoric coming out of you know both agencies being the, the core agencies being the, the, the SEC and the CFTC, you know about jurisdiction. I think one thing that we we will see though. Is, I think we'll continue to see. We saw it late last year through the president's working group and and some uh, hearings both in the House and Senate earlier this year is stable coins. I, I think we'll see some work around the edges with stable coins and maybe some some more advanced uh, work around the central bank digital currency. But I, I don't see, I don't think we're going to see anything wholesale in terms of legislative solutions. There'll be bills introduced, whether they're passed or not. You know, we'll, we'll see that there have been bills that have been introduced. I mean. We'll likely see more enforcement too. I mean, I just think that's just the product of of, of markets and how they develop, um, no matter the asset class. One area where we see a lot of debate is around the perceived tension between investor protection and agile, fast-paced innovation. What are your views on KYC criteria and whether they need to evolve somewhat in the crypto age? Yeah, so this is actually something near, nearer and dearer to me. From you know, from when I put my compliance officer hat on, I think the, the way I like to, to sort of talk about this subject and you know, give you my response and thoughts are that um, you know, think about when digital assets and cryptocurrency first began to gain some mainstream adoption, and you know, KYC, AML, uh, and, and privacy also, you know, by extension, were really the only key tenets of, of, we'll call it regulatory scrutiny that you saw um, or that we saw as an industry. And if you think about where we are today, flash forward, we've really hardened and they've become sort of embedded in almost programmatic elements of a compliance regulatory framework. Uh, we have vendors that are doing excellent work like Chainalysis, Elliptic and TRM Labs, amongst others, you know, to really provide practitioners in the space tools as well as you know law enforcement and 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 regulatory authorities with the tools to to detect guard against and prevent you know financial crime so i i think we've come a long way um and i you know i i would just say it's always been curious to me how the you know a lot of the compliance function has always been staffed by individuals who who have their sole level of expertise is in not sole, it's not fair, but you know, their, their primary level of expertise has been around financial crime. I think you're starting to see really where it's it's becoming hardened, like I said, and it's becoming programmatic, and people just know what they need to do for the most part 
uh, at least in the central the centralized platform operators. And, you know, you have to execute. You have you have rules of the road. And if you want to play here in the U.S. specifically, you, you have to abide by those rules and have a compliance program in place. So I don't know if that addresses your question, but I, I think we're I think we're starting to see them become like like your breakfast. People have to eat eat your breakfast every day to get on, you know, to get on a good, you know, to, to get to start your day off the right way. I think you, you have to perform KYC AML if you want to conduct business here in the U.S. or with U.S. customers. Another related area of contention is the accredited, accredited investor exemption. Some would argue that it directly impacts equality and investment opportunity, exacerbating an already pronounced inequality gap. In your view, is it time for a more substantive update to the definition? Yeah, so that's a great question. It's it's another one that's near and dear to me. One of my stops, we, you know, credit investor was it was a barrier to entry to to accessing certain products, uh, mainly, you know, private private placements uh, that are providing you know digital asset exposure. I think you know there's the way to think about this, and where my head's at is that, you know, you need to constantly adjust for inflation with monetary policy. I think the same should be for for these sort of, you know, thresholds, or I call them barriers to entry for accessing financial products. What's interesting is when when I think the the definitions were last adopted or most recently adopted, you know, they did they being the SEC did make some some changes. I thought were were forward thinking, with allowing, for example, people who have a Series Seven, for example, to to actually opt you know, qualify for uh, under the definition of an AI. That's that's interesting, but it's also curious to me. And interesting and curious are two different things because uh, you could be right out of college, your first job, making I, I don't want to attach a you know we'll say an, an, an insignificant amount of m- money in terms of a base salary, but you could have a series you could hold a Series Seven license. You're meaning to tell me that that person, that individual, is far more sophisticated just by lieu of holding uh, a proficiency examination than someone. Who, who maybe, you know, has taken uh, a hit in income or in their net worth over time, but may have others may have sig- significantly more experience. I think it's curious how, how how that was one of the the adjustments. And we've seen some regulators and policymakers call for changes. I, I believe Commissioner Purse has has actually said that this is time to actually look at the um, at the definitions and the, and the thresholds more closely. So yeah, I, yes, I, I think I think it could be healthy, especially where, you know, some people are just closed off. Some investors are closed off by lieu of a black and white um, requirement that they have to meet and will fail to do so if the definition is not changed. In the context of the previous question, what ought to be the criteria for allowing a cryptocurrency on any trading platform in the U.S.? So that's interesting. I mean. Uh, are, are you talking about listing criteria for a for a, for a platform? Yes. Yeah. So look, there, there, there's been some great work that's been done around the edges over the past few years. Like, for example, the Crypto Ratings Council, you know, has has sort of uh, they took the lead several years back in, in providing a framework. Uh, you know, the New York State Regulated Department of Financial Services now you know requires uh, you know, bit license holders. And others uh, who have a trust license to have a, uh, you know, a coin listing policy, which sets forth the, the criteria. So there are some guidelines. I think the challenge that we have right here, it comes down to, 
I mean, you could take two different approaches. Some platforms just mass list and, you know, they say, look, they've taken the, the view, you know, that they're going to list these assets for trading if there's commercial interest and unless they're told otherwise. That's one approach. There's another, you know, a sort of group or audience that's more thoughtful, I think, and being more conservative and saying, look, you know, we just don't know. Is token X security? Is token B, uh, you know, commodity? And I think it's that sort of uncertainty that really is has bifurcated the approach that market participants have taken. So I, I think the answer is just without clear guidance, you're going to have to get comfortable as a platform operator, whether you're a centralized platform operator or you're you know, OTC market maker, uh, you know, you're gonna have to get comfortable within your own risk tolerance. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I think we don't talk about actually, Mike, or we don't hear talking about as much is actually what are the criteria for delisting hmm. an asset? And what do you do in, in light of an enforcement action uh, if an asset is facing, you know, regulatory scrutiny? I think that's actually a more fascinating question. I, would it be fair to say that in the present time, this is more of an exercise in risk mitigation as opposed to finding the right answers. Because from what you're telling me, there isn't one right now. I think that's correct. You know, it's the you know it's the same test we've been faced with for years. Is 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 this widget is token A a security? Yes or no? And if it's a security, um, you know, you, then you under U.S. law rule and regulation, it needs to be traded, you know, on or through a broker dealer on a national security exchange or a, alternative trading system. And I think, I think it's still the same. So yes, I mean, I, I think it is risk mitigation at this point and people have different risk appetites just as you do in traditional financial services. A common refrain we hear a lot from regulators is coming in to register. What does that mean in concrete terms? So that is a perplexing, uh, that, that is the million dollar question. I think everyone either who's listening or any market Participant or a practitioner, whether you know you're a lawyer, policymaker, it's it's the million dollar question. What does it mean? Um, you know, we've heard a lot of sort of discourse about how you have to come in and register as a national securities exchange or register as a broker dealer, alternative trading system, and and even by extension, I, you know, I think there's there's been some remarks from from uh, you know former uh, former commissioner at the CFTC about you know some of these platforms could be actually could fall within the CFTC's ambit as a designated contract market or a swap execution facility. So let's unpack that for a little bit. It, here's what I don't hear a lot of people talking about. And this is someone who coming from someone, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a market structure guy and I've been in traditional financial services and in digital assets. Now what's what we don't hear a lot about is the dislocation or the bifurcation of the markets. How, what would happen if one of these platforms or operators would actually go in and voluntarily register or be forced to register as, say, a broker-dealer? And my, my thought is, I don't even know that it works. I don't even know that it can work. I don't think the technology necessarily comports with the way the laws, rules, and regulations are designed today, specifically in a securities construct. I also take it a step further and say, think about... So FINRA is the self-regulatory organization for, for most member firms in the securities world. The, the SEC sets policy. They'll step in. They do conduct examinations. But for the most part, they they delegate most of the enforcement and oversight to the financial industry regulatory or FINRA. 
FINRA sets proficiency examinations, for example. We, we talked earlier about you know, the accredited investor standard in Series 7. So, like, I, I just don't know, taking that as just one, and we could talk for hours about this, what, if you force a platform to register as a broker-dealer, what about all the employees who are, who are working and supporting that platform? They have to now go out and take tests. What about disclosures and obligations and conflicts of interest? Do you have to tell all of your holdings in cryptocurrencies, all your outside business activities? Engineers frequently in this space take side projects and they work on more than one, um, you know, it's almost like a gig economy. They'll work on more than one project. Are they allowed to? I, I just don't see, will owners pass, will people in the cap table pass proficiency? Will they be able to pass muster with background checks? They have to be fingerprinted. It's just, to me, it's a, it's a puzzle. And then putting aside even like, you know, the market conduct element to it, you know, with, with how you would actually, you would actually enforce regulatory obligations on an asset class and technology that's not designed for this regulatory framework is an unanswered question. So it's very easy to shout from the rooftops and say, come in and register. I just don't see, even if one files a form NMA to become a, a broker dealer or a form one as, to become a national securities exchange, I just don't see how it works, at least right now. Well, that's interesting because what what's the way forward then? Well, I mean, that, that's, that's again, that, that's why I think a lot of us who, who have you know, gained some experience and worked in the space are, 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 are curious about what, what is the way forward. I, I, I do think, though, there is, look, it's not necessarily fair to always go out and attack regulators and policymakers. I, I think we have to take a step back. Remember that you know, these are public servants who are, you know, in many, many ways, you know, dedicating their careers to actually, you know, ensuring investor protection market integrity, some of the themes you touched on earlier in an earlier question. And so, you know, I think we need to like take a step back on and look at it from their perspective. I I just think that some of the rhetoric from the industry is not helpful also. I I question how many people who actually practice in digital asset space could if you sort of you know pin them down and, and said explain to me the difference between a broker dealer and a broker dealer that's duly registered as an alternative trading system. Explain to me what a futures commission merchant is, or what actually are the obligations of a national securities exchange. I, I question how many of them would actually be able to get into the weeds about it. So, you know, I, your, your question was about where we go from there. I, I actually do think maybe one of the things I've, I've sort of double clicked on this to myself. I think people in crypto could actually maybe benefit from taking a proficiency exam or at least reviewing the, con the, the content of one and just seeing, you know, things like short sales and, and, you know, the Manning rule and just understanding what a markup and markdown is like just understanding some of the basic concepts. And, and then you can say, Hey, this doesn't work, but where do we go from here? There's going to have to be a change in law, rule or regulation, or, or even possibly an entirely new regulatory regime. Uh, and I don't mean another agency. I think that's that's not necessary. I just think there have to be a change to allow this technology to fit within the existing framework, or at least an acknowledgement that it doesn't in the in its current state. I want to switch gears and look at the DeFi in particular. 
Can some of these projects coexist with the traditional financial market infrastructure? And what are the risks you see from a regulatory perspective? So first and foremost, I mean, I think it's obvious to, to all that this technology is transcendent. It could really transform the way that financial services work and you know, provide open access uh, you know, to people who are shut off from certain corners of the financial system. I don't think there's any question about that. And I'm a, I'm just so curious. I can't tell you, you know, I, I think you read about a new project every day almost, and the technology is just amazing. I think some of my fellow practitioners in the field are just some of the smartest people out there, you know, whether they're lawyers, engineers, product developers, it's just, it's fascinating what, what's been brought to market already. The biggest risk without a doubt in my mind is that one of the platforms could be deemed an unregulated piece of market infrastructure. And again, this is, I think this was called out by former CFTC commissioner, Dan Berkowitz in a speech last year, I think, but I, I think it was, uh, his statement was that, hey, look, some of these, for example, decentralized exchanges may, you know, may fall within the CFTC's regulatory framework. So I think that's the biggest risk. And you'll know, I, I didn't touch on the, you know, the, the token element to it, the asset, because I think that's separate. Let's separate, you know, the, the actual asset that may be used on these platforms. That's still, to me, the same or similar issue. It's a taxonomy thing, whether the, you know, the instrument is a security or commodity, how do you classify it? But the, the greatest risk is, in my mind, clearly that this could be deemed, one of these platforms could be deemed an unregulated piece of market infrastructure. Turning to compliance and legal roles, your bread and butter, these roles seem to be treated differently in crypto than they are in traditional financial services. Why do you think that is? And identify, based on your extensive experience, the difference in skill sets needed. Yeah, that's a great question. One, one I, I think about daily, and I, and I actually think this is um, an area that's starting to evolve a little bit. I mean, you know, people people talk about you know the great migration or you know the great resignation, and everyone there's a flock of talent from traditional wall street into, into crypto. Um, it's always been curious to me how the prototype for an individual who, who serves in a legal or, or compliance function is those is one who's based solely on whose background is based solely on financial crime, you know, or AML CFT. It, it, you know, like I said earlier, it made sense maybe in, in the beginning in, in the earlier history of, crypto where the primary regulatory consideration was about detecting and preventing money uh, laundering. But, um, you know, if you're at a traditional financial services firm, a bank, a broker dealer, investment advisor, really the, the chief compliance officer, the head of compliance, or, you know, the lawyer, the general counsel is someone with a more rounded skill set. It's, it's, it's really not the AML officer. So, you know, I think that was one thing that was interesting. What we see, though, how how is it different? I think there's several there's several uh, layers. So first off, the space moves fast. So those who have worked in crypto would likely agree with me here unanimous, unanimously. Um, you know, there is there is a a need for an individual with a skill set who's able to actually make a split level decision, split second decision, and actually make a gut call. I think those who are coming from traditional financial services have a tendency to, I'm doing air quotes here, recreate the banks. And, 
you know, I, I think where they struggle and where a compliance officer, a lawyer in crypto is a little bit different is that you lack that comfort. You, you're not going to have like in a bank, in a traditional financial services firm, the com comfort or safety net of going to several different parties and having your decision vetted by different risk committees and just an army of other voices. You're just the sole voice there. Here, you may be called on to make a gut decision, uh, you know, and as, in a split second. And, you know, I, I think that's the biggest difference. And it takes someone with a strong stomach. You have to really roll up your sleeves and you have to do the work independently and and actually make a, a judgment call on the fly sometimes. And and that's where I th I think we may my my look I made the I made the pivot and others will too. I think that's where we may see a little bit of a setback where, where firms are, are are actually seeking talent from traditional financial services. Um, and they may not be successful in those hires. Having been in the space longer than most, Dan, what advice or tips would you give a lawyer looking to get into the area? So, so first, talk to people, learn, be open-minded, don't come in and purport to know everything, show a little humility. Some of the smartest people you'll ever work with are the business people and the early adopters of this technology. They may not have, you know, come up in traditional financial services in, in many respects, uh, but the technology that they're, that they've built and that they built products and services on, I should say, is just fascinating. And I think you have to be willing to learn and instead of just assuming, you know, everything. Um, so, the, so, I think the other piece of advice is if, if it's a senior level role and you're coming in a senior level capacity, just the complexity of issues, they, they cut across geographic regions, various you know governmental agencies. It's, it's becoming very complicated to navigate the regulatory landscape. So I, I think actually what's interesting is that having a legal background is probably going to be a requirement for whether it's you know, compliance, policy, regulatory, anything regulatory is probably going to be a requirement. And so you need to sort of understand that you have to be able to distill complicated, you know, interpretive guidance, white papers, just different speeches, and you have to distill them down into digestible form, which brings me to the next piece of advice is that don't expect to come in and, you know, drop a 20 page memo on, you know, is this a security or why you can or cannot, you know, enter this business line or why you should or should not enter this business line. I think what you'll find is that, yeah, sometimes you have to do that as, as a lawyer specifically, but I think, you know, market participants and the leaders, executives at these companies, they want, you know, a, a more condensed analysis and you'll have to, as I say, the, the one pager. Sometimes it's it's a true one pager. Sometimes it's a flipper. You flip it over. It's going to have to be in short form, and and that's that's I think a skill that that you're going to have to master. It's it's challenging to to actually distill down these complicated concepts that cross borders and cross cultures um, into into short form analysis or opinions. I gather brevity in terms of legal memos is a requirement in this in this space. I think it's a. I think it's a it's a it's 
to preference. <laughs> uh, I want to now touch on an area that does not get a lot of coverage in this space, or at least as much as it should. I'm referring to mental health and life balance. My formative years were spent in Web 2.0 when we all thought that change was moving at the speed of light. The pace I now see on a daily basis makes those days look like a walk in the park. When you add this to the stress brought on by the pandemic, it seems like life balance may be elusive to many of us. What does a typical day at the office look like for you, and how do you find your equilibrium? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and you're right; it doesn't get a lot of uh, talk, or at least a lot of coverage. And I think, at least outside of of the, the crypto space, people are you know a lot of these companies start off with remote. You know, to begin with, the pandemic has exacerbated this this condition of remote work, and I think it's actually. Before I tell you about how I manage it, I, I think one of the challenges is, yes, we're coming out of it. We're starting to see, you know, more conferences live, face to face rather than virtual. But, you know, I mean, with people joining organizations and leaving organizations. I mean, it's tougher. The interpersonal element of it is gone or, or it, it, it's ceasing to exist more and more. And I think there's something to be said about actually still sitting down, having a coffee, you know, or, or, or getting a drink or having dinner or lunch with someone or, or even an interview, like sitting across the table from someone and actually interviewing live. I, I don't know that we ever go back to that. I think we've all become so accustomed to it, at least not in, 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 in entirety. Maybe, you know, we'll have a, a split the baby mentality where, you know, some there'll be some form of physical presence and some remote. But to answer your question directly, you know, I think the challenge is that our work and our lives are blended together. And we work more than ever before. You're your home is your office, your office is your home. And it's very hard to just shut it down and say, hey, look, I'm done for the day. Because it's also, you know, we've talked a lot in this in this conversation about you know, global aspect, different geo regions, and just, you know, how you have to always be online and, and accessible. I think it's tough to walk away. So what I like to do, I, and I have, I have three young children, um, I like to use them as my sort of uh, as my sort of uh, line of demarcation. When they need things, that's when I shut it down, or that's when I take a pause. Um, you know, others don't have that. I, I call it a luxury. Others don't have that opportunity. Um, but you know, anytime I have a chance to go to one of my my child's you know, events, whether it's a dance competition or sporting event, uh, I will take I will take it. Uh, and I think that provides a little bit of um, it's sort of break mental health break. Uh, the other thing is, you know, we, we read a lot about our, our work. We find, at least I find that a lot of what I read is work. You know, you're reading stuff. You, you find that the downtime that you have, you're catching up on reading because you're on calls all day long. I think one other element or aspect that could help people with sort of finding that, that break or that balance is to actually read something different. So I've been trying to read a lot more, I think, um, you know, that then, then just crypto and try to read, you know, things that are mindless, just even if it's just for a little bit, just to get your mind off of what you do day in and day out. Perfect segue into my next question, Ben. 
Are there any books or other media that you find helpful or interesting that you would recommend to our listeners? That's a great question. So, so I, I don't want to endorse any one particular book, but I, I would tell you there are a lot of them that are out there now. Uh, it's seeming, it used to be like even like a year or two ago, it used to, you know, it, it used to be challenging, quite frankly, to go ahead and and find a book on on crypto. I'm I, I'm going to confine this to digital assets and crypto. And now there's just it's seemingly every day there's a, there's another one published. I, I I would take your question and actually answer it a, a little bit differently. Try to read some of the early, the books about the, the early adopters and the early work that's done in the space more than technical reads. I think the reason why I'm saying that is it's twofold. One, they're more storytelling, you know, easier to read, easier to digest. And second, you actually learn about the it's, it's history of what you do for a living. And if you live and breathe this technology and this, this ecosystem, that we're building this new world economy. I mean, I think it helps to actually hear a non-technical read and a story. So even if it's, you know, even if it's not a happy ending, we'll call it, um, there are many, you know, there, there are colorful characters. There are villains, you, you know, there are heroes and heroines to use it, you know, both, both terms, gender neutral terms here. You, you should really try to read those type of tales more than the technical uh, books. I think that will help you gain an understanding of where we came from, which will help you as a practitioner in the field on where we need to go in the future. Well, we'll get our research team to look into it and, and come up with some of the oldies and the goodies. It's great. Like, I mean, there's everything from, I know, you know, journalist Laura Shin hosted the uh, Unchained podcast, just published a book um, about the early days of Ethereum. You know, Camila Russo has, has published one. Infinite Machine. You can even go to Digital Gold by Nathaniel Popper. Phenomenal book. Um, you know, there's just that list. The list goes on. Former CFTC chair Christian Carlo published Crypto Dad. You know, there's there's a lot of them. Honestly, if you just go to your Amazon and Barnes and Noble, uh, you know, browser and just type in Bitcoin or crypto, I think you'd, you'd find a lot. But I don't think the technical reads are are, are something I would recommend. A lot of that, you, you know, is is sort of um, textbook reading at this stage, honestly. Last question that I put to every one of our guests, gazing into the future. This is the real crystal ball question, Ben. Where will crypto be five years out? Yeah, that's a good, so, so let's, I'm going to answer. I have, I have my, my views on this. I think there's two things. There's crypto, the, the token, the token aspect, tokenization aspect of it. And then there's the underlying distributed ledger technology or blockchain technology, whichever, you know, some people are religious about which term it, that you should or, or, or could use, I, I think there's two different answers. So one is the, the technology itself, the underlying technology will pretty much become integrated into many aspects of our life. I don't know what time frame or time horizon it is, but I just think about how the analogy I give you is, is like the music industry. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember cassettes and compact discs. And then, you know, there was, file sharing, although illegal, on Napster. And, um, you know, look, Apple's made headways with with iTunes and your, your old iPods where you could purchase a song or an album for a fixed price. And, you know, it, it took us now to where we are today with, you know, these, these monthly subscription services like Spotify. I think blockchain technology, distributed ledger technology, could supplant a lot of the way that we conduct business today 
with centralized databases and you know just think about the way the securities market works and it settles with you know ledger entries and its commodities market as well candidly um so i think there's that and i think i don't know the time frame like i said at the outset i don't know if it's five ten years but i just i just think it's evolution it's it's tech it's technology will evolve and and this is um still in its early some people may not like me to hear this may not like to hear me say this but it's still a little clunky you know so we're in the early days i think you know the ease of use is, is not just there yet it's not it, you know we're getting there as an industry um and like i said a lot of people smarter than me will figure out how to get us there but to, as for the token the, you know the actual crypto asset i should probably use a you know a more appropriate term the crypto asset element to it it could go several ways look i don't think there's going to be one blockchain you know and i don't think there's going to be a thousand i think there'll be more than one and i think that's a fair assessment you know some there there will be interoperability which will allow you know some of these these layer ones to actually connect there'll be other scaling solutions which we're already seeing today i think the token the digital asset or crypto asset itself could go one of several ways it could become another form of of money it could be i think we will see some of that with stable coin or central bank digital currency um i i think the other area is that you know coming from traditional financial services uh people may forget but this, this these markets trade like foreign exchange like fx they trade in currency pairs like i think you could see some integration or sort of you know blending into the traditional foreign exchange markets because if you think about what i just said earlier if it's money of some sort you know, I, I think people are going to have more than one currency, just like we are today in, in the you know, in the in the world economy. There's 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 U.S. dollar, there's a euro, there's you know, there's there's a Brazilian real. I mean, there's different world currencies, so people may want to, you know, sort of treat cryptocurrency, crypto assets, the same way. Um, but I think again, in all fairness, the taxonomy issue, the categorization of this is going to is going to um, drive a lot of it. Some people think that crypto assets are fuel, right? They fuel a network. Uh, some people think that, you know, or have a view that they're governance tokens and, you know, they're, they're votes that you, you know, rights that you hold to vote on a, on a protocol. Um, but I think the large majority of them look, just to be fair, still trade like speculative in, in, you know, for speculative trading purposes. And to me, that's where I think you could see a blend into into traditional markets another area just as a, as a thought is I, I could see a stable coin for example or, or a crypto asset itself becoming almost used like margin in in for example the futures markets instead of posting us dollars you know we're seeing a proliferation of of market participants attempt to enter the derivative space here in the us and bring that market back on shore um, because a lot of it has been pushed offshore due to lack of, uh, you know, clear guidance from regulators. You could see a crypto asset be used actually as collateral or margin, um, uh, you know, for trading other commodities like fuel or corn or soy. That's one area it could go to. Um, those, those are my views, my views alone. Uh, but I, I just don't think we know. I think, I think everyone's kind of, got different opinions about which way the technology and the crypto asset itself will, you know, will sort of develop. But um, 
you know what? There's more than there's probably more than one right answer. I think that's that's how I would sum it up. One follow-up question. You mentioned that a lot of the apps there are fairly clunky, and I think most of us would agree. Do you foresee a day where trading crypto and managing your asset will be as easy as it is to trade stocks online today? I do. I believe. I, I believe. I, and again, I pivot back to a lot of people smarter than me. You know, they're, they're working on this. I think that's where that that's where some of the work has gone in. I mean, honestly, anyone who who really you know who really uh, says, "Oh, it's too clunky" at all, I think is being a little bit disingenuous because it it is rather simple to actually create an account on a centralized exchange. I'm not going to endorse any one platform over another and link your bank account, hold up your driver's license or passport and and then just start buying crypto. I think where the challenge is is you, you know, like even today, like I don't know, my generation older than me, my parents, they don't use Venmo. Venmo is pretty simple. Like I just think there's always going to be uh you know, one camp that likes their bank that likes walking in somewhere to a physical storefront likes picking up the phone and calling customer service uh, i i think you're never going to have unanimous uh views you know it, it, it's just some people are never going to be swayed and it could be out of just you know ignorance or just an inability to grasp technology but i do think we are going to get there think of think about some of the experiences i mean mike you know they are rather easy but I, I think when it comes to like, you know, hooking up your, your your MetaMask wallet to a decentralized exchange and then moving your tokens over to another platform, I mean, I, I just think it's you know waiting the time. I think we're not there yet, but there's, again, there's a lot of, lot smarter people than I, and there's just so much amazing work going on. I think we do get there. I lo- I look forward to that day. It's a, it's a matter of who want, who who actually uses it though. That, that's the thing. It, we'll get there and it, it'll think of it. It's like a menu. You'll offer the, the consumer the, the, the meat, the fish and the vegetarian. And it's up to them to really decide what they want. I, I think that's where we get to in a target state. Mike. Well, that, that makes sense to me. And I think that it would certainly bring a lot more people on board once that happens. Yeah, I, mean, I remain hopeful. I think every, who, uh, I'll give you just one closing you know, thought on this topic is that, you know, just like who to. I go back 12, 13 years ago, who, who would have thought that, you know, we would be trading credit default swaps or interest rate swap complicated financial instruments as some politicians like to, to call them weapons of mass destruction, right? Uh, on, on a screen, actually removing a 50 page contract, you know, is the, you know, from, you know, from the mix and, and actually just pointing and clicking and entering into that same thing with, with, with bonds. You think about you know, fixed income, just clicking on a screen or stocks, any financial instrument, I think we've come a long way and, and, and digital assets will follow suit in the same or similar fashion. Thank you so much for your time, Ben, today and for your insights. Much appreciated. No, thanks for having me, Mike. I'm really a big fan of Bankless and, and your mission, what you guys are trying to do. Um, so look, look forward. Hopefully we can do this again sometime soon. We want to thank Bankless Dow for supporting this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and share on your favorite podcast streaming platform and Twitter at BanklessDAO. Questions, comments, suggestions? Please join us in the Bankless Dow Discord server and post on the General Legal Channel. 
or DM our host, Mike Rabinovich, at Comeback Kid. Till next time.